This episode of Uncontrolled Airspace is made possible by the support of our generous listeners. For over seven years, we've been thrilled to enjoy the financial support and useful feedback of our awesome listeners. For information on how you can join the conversation in our forums, put something in the UCAP tip jar, or even become an underwriter of a UCAP episode, visit the UCAP homepage at uncontrolledairspace.com. Clear. But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> oh. What's the matter, well, David? It's a crop duster. No wonder he's dodging. Tower. It's a crop duster. This is a video I found. I don't know where I found how I found it. It's on the uh, New York Times website, which means you only get to watch it a couple times before they want money. But, anyways, um, it's an interesting video. Uh, it's a sort of mini documentary about the hazards of uh, being a crop duster, being an ag pilot these days. <laughs> and um, in, in above and beyond the uh, you know the kind of long time you know these guys will fly under power lines and in this video it's kind of cool they actually fly in amongst all these big wind turbines and they're actually flying beneath the spinning blades of the wind turbines and uh, um, but uh, the uh, the point of this little mini documentary is that uh, a new hazard has appeared in our modern age and that is that uh, the uh, the wind turbine companies in in the process as part of the process of figuring out how to site these these wind turbines to figure out where there's good wind and you know whatever it is they need to figure out they put up these um weather observation towers and they can put them up like within a couple hours and they're high enough to be a real hazard to these uh, these uh, ag pilots and and they're very nearly invisible i mean they, you know and there's no apparently documentation about there's no place where they can go and look at notums or anything like that to find out well, whether a tower's been added and uh, the people that put these up these meteorological observation towers and if you look at some of the uh some of the more urban cell towers which would keep truck crop dusters naturally out of the picture the, the the engineers the designers the clients they bring them in 5 to 8 feet under the uh, the height where lighting regulations kick in right but way it, taller than there's going to be a problem for the ag pilots well, in in an urban environment, you know, it's likely no harm, no foul. Uh, but they don't do this in an but urban you environment. Start, you, you, put these, you start putting these out, say, in the perimeter of uh, Wichita, mm -hmm. uh, big wheat country, big grain sorghum country, uh, a fair amount of agricultural application traffic around here. Uh, and you got to be mindful of both the uh, existence of these towers for some of the instrument approaches in the area. Mm -hmm. Okay, there are no TAM, some of them, uh, but new ones can go up very short notice and and take a while to get into the system. And then you got the ag pilots, uh, and there's not always good notice as these things are going up because they come in under the limit where the FAA is required to be notified. I know. And according to what they say in this little mini documentary, it's about 10, 10 minutes long or so, um, the, the, uh, there is no notice. There's no place where these guys can go to look up whether or not one of these towers has been added to the field that he's about to spray. And, uh, I mean, the thing, the thing that really caught my attention here is my impression has always been that these crop duster pilots, these ag, ag agricultural applicator pilots, <laughs> are fearless. All right? The flying that they do is crazy. And... 
and they're really good and they're basically fearless. And here was something that kind of made this guy scared. A couple of them that were interviewed in this thing were like, this is scary because we have no, you know, the only way we discover they're there is we go out and fly and hope we see it in time. Right. Yeah. There's somebody killed recently mm-hmm. who's, who's fairly well known or, or, uh, um, experienced, been around the industry for years and years and hit one of these things and, and was killed. Really? Uh, I hadn't... Yeah, it, okay. yeah, this has been within the last couple of weeks. Oh, very, very interesting. Or at least I read about it within the last couple okay. of weeks, I'll presume. This uh, story and this video story on the New York Times is dated October 2nd, so it's about a week ago or two mm-hmm. weeks ago, something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, so anyways, I don't know, you know. I remember you know, the whole subject of towers. Is, is, is this getting out of hand, Jeb? You're our safety guy. Is, are towers a... a, a I mean, obviously, they're a hazard to ag pilots. And Dave, you, you allude to them being a hazard to IFR pilots. Um, our friend, remember, our, we talked about this a long time ago, a couple of, year, couple of years ago, even, that our friend Don Weaver, the uh, acro pilot, um, who's also a very experienced instructor, was talking about towers that are charted that don't exist. Yeah. Is it the reverse? This is the flip yeah. side of this yeah. problem, right? It doesn't surprise me. Is that he found a number of, he's, he's based up in, uh, in sort of southern central Michigan, and he found a number of towers that were on the charts and in the, like the, uh, you know, the Garmin databases and, the, and so forth, the, uh, the Jepson databases and whatnot, but that the towers didn't exist. He, first, he couldn't believe it the first time he discovered this because he's flying along and there's a tower on his, on his screen and he's going to, you know, he's got his head out looking for this tower and he can't find the tower and he can't find the tower. And he poked around and discovered the tower didn't exist. And hmm. he, he, he said he had a good time one time. He actually forced, he flew through the tower and, and his, uh, you know, his, his GPS, you know, uh, uh, systems were just losing their mind. Right? <laughs> As they're saying, warning, warning, you know, danger, Will Robinson, it's a tower there. And he was just, you know, so, uh, but, uh, and he's, you know, he, he, he did that, with the full knowledge that cloaking devices have yet to be perfected. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what it is. Um, so anyways, Jeb or even Dave, are, are towers, is, is the FAA keeping up with the whole subject of uh, these kinds of hazards to flight? The quick answer is no. They never have been able to keep up. Um, they don't have the statutory authority and they don't have the budget. This has been a perennial problem for the FAA and um and for operators, be they agricultural or otherwise, for years, decades, in fact. Um, again, the root cause of this is the FAA doesn't have the statutory authority to require um, and to regulate um, some things. Uh, above a certain altitude, yes, they do. But below that altitude, I don't know what it is, if it's 200, 400, whatever it is, um, only when they start to penetrate into the IFR system, um, uh, do they have the ability to really get down and and, and uh, um, get into court and, and have things taken down and take moved or whatever? Shorter obstacles uh, like this again have been popping up for decades, and the FAA will is sometimes forced to do nothing but jawbone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully, you know, maybe the the owner, uh, whoever owns the. Uh, the obstacle will agree to, to move it or relocate it. I'm sorry, move it or take it down. Yeah. Um, so that's nothing new. Now, you asked earlier, you know, is this, uh, are these, um, these Met Towers a problem? Yeah, I've been hearing about them um, as problems. They're not, I want to say they're not showing up in the data 
they're not showing up as accident reports. Uh, but then again, I don't pay that much attention to agricultural aviation uh, accident reports. Mm-hmm. So, what about cell towers? Are they? Are, I, I remember for some reason this always stuck in my mind. This goes back to my early days of being a pilot. So we're talking twenty plus years ago now, mm-hmm. and this coincidentally is also the time when cell phones were really starting to take off. All right, and um, cell towers were appearing all over the place. And at the time, the standard cell tower was tall enough that it had to be charted. Mm-hmm. And so they were just like the the uh, sectionals in particular were being were were just getting cluttered with yeah. all these cell towers, and so there were some FAA people. Um, I don't know if it was FAA or NTSB, but it was that kind of people were at an air show that I attended, and they were just chatting with people, and they were kind of taking this informal survey, asking pilots, "How do you feel if we were to take these off the chart? All right, we'd clean up the chart. They're pretty low. They're probably not a hazard to most pilots, anyways." Um, and uh, and I guess they did take them off, or, or didn't they? Tell me that. Uh, I, I guess I don't see them, so they must be must have been well, taken off. There's a lot of cell towers out there. You know, it's a shame we don't have some mechanism yeah. or, or network that we could use to, to research what yeah. the criteria are. Oh, the, you, for, you look up the criteria for, I'm gonna for look, putting a tower on a sectional chart. I'm going to look at a, a tower that's right in my neighborhood. I know where there's a cell tower. Let me see if it's on the on the uh, sectional here. Well, you were talking about the Met Towers. Yeah. That's a relatively new addition to the hazard yeah. potential and is multiplying rather quickly and largely, you know, no pun intended, uh, below the radar. And the reason is because they're low cost way to feed real time weather data to a national network that helps protect people against the threat of severe storms and helps improve, you know, the short-term weather forecasts and all this stuff. They're not just out there for grins and giggles. Mm -hmm. We understand why they exist and we understand why they've become so uh, uh, prolific in in numbers and growing like crazy. Uh, What I don't understand is this dig in when you start talking about asking people to voluntarily light the bloody things. Yeah, yeah. Because we're really not talking about trying to restrict or prevent them from putting towers up where they're most useful. Same way with the you know rural cell towers, which are going to be higher than the uh, urban ones. Urban ones can be shorter because this 4G and uh, current t- digital technology range isn't as long, they put up more towers, there's more overlap for smaller circles. Uh, They don't have to be as tall, and their range doesn't improve a whole lot when they do make them taller. So, uh, out in the boons, big deal. But why all this resistance to putting a simple light or two on a 195-foot MET tower? I guess. Would that help during the day, though? Would that help the agriculture, the the crop dusters? I don't know. It, it, It should, if it's the right kind of light. Put a good bright LED strobe on it. I think one of the reasons I would guess one of the reasons there's resistance to putting lights on these things is there's no power, uh, no excess power to use for lighting. These are probably self-contained, battery-operated uh, instruments, and there's no real provision made for um, for lighting this thing. I'm looking at the FAA's chart user's guide. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, Basically, it says 
sectional charts and terminal charts typically show man-made obstacles extending more than 200 feet above ground. Uh, okay. Unless they appear in yellow city tin. In other words, that would be like for a remote area or, or no built-up structures nearby. Uh, on WAC charts, World Aeronautical charts, only those obstacles 500 feet AGL and higher are charted. Um, there's some other details here, but basically we're talking 200 feet uh, is what is charted or what is required to be mm-hmm. charted. I think we can uh, you know, presume that or, well, let me put it another way. 200 feet is what the FAA charts on sectional. I don't know what's required to be reported. Okay. Uh, and that's a whole other yeah. uh, Googling session. And then just to give you a practical example here, um, there's two cell towers in my neighborhood here near Papa Papa that I'm familiar with, the towers. Um, one of them actually is charted, and it appears to be 263 feet tall, the tower. Uh-huh. Um, the other one... Uh, is not charted, and so I can only presume that it's less than 200 feet tall, which is kind of consistent with my my sense of it. That it's well, that's charted. why so many of these Met Towers are 192, 194, yeah. 195 feet tall. Uh, and I do believe that there's some finesse in the regs when you start to get within a certain distance of the airspace where they can come out and say, you know, we want you to put a light on it. Here's an extension cord. Uh but there, there are solutions to the lighting uh, issue that could be uh, helpful during the day and keep it self-sustaining. Well, uh, you know, it's really it, useful at night. Paint it orange, you know, and and, yeah, and, and yeah, put a yeah. put an LED strobe on it or something. That you know, you're not trying to, trying to illuminate the area. You're trying to draw attention. Yeah, exactly. I think the, the lesson here is that uh, that you really not need to keep your head on swivel the next time you're putting around at 175 feet AGL, right? And, uh, well, there, there's always that, and and I don't I don't minimize the the the. Uh, Risk, and I don't mem- minimize the uh, abilities of of these pilots in any stretch of the imagination. And I'm, and I'm, you know, this is this is definitely a problem. Um, it's only a problem for those flying, you know, two to three hundred feet. Yeah, yeah. And I'm telling you, and, Any, but, anything that scares the egg pilots must be really scary. Well, yeah, I would agree. So, I would agree. Hey, hey, uh, welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, <laughs> the General Aviation Podcast. There was no segue there; it wasn't going to happen. It was not a segue. Yeah, no. right. No, we just had to go for it. Uh, I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm uh, coming to you this afternoon from uh, Papa Papa in uh, Southern New Hampshire, and. Uh, Coming in flying low. Chatting with my two good friends here. Uh, one of those voices out there is Dave Higdon talking to, from, from, talking to us from, easy for me to say, talking to us from Wichita, Kansas, the air capital of the world. How you doing, David? Uh, just doing marvelous. Is that uh, what you guys call yourselves, the air capital of the world or the air capital of the United States? Or what's the official? Well, I'm not sure it's official with anything, but unofficially, air capital of the world. Air is capital what of the world. Is, yeah. works, works for me. How's things going? What's going on? Uh, well, we're uh, kind of enjoying the idea that it's Friday afternoon. Most of the work of the week is done. Most of the chores for the week are done. Uh, can go into what's looking like it's going to be a pretty marginal weekend with an open schedule. Oh, really? <laughs> Yay! Yeah, yeah. It's, so uh, uh, it's it's not looking likely that we'll be taking any open cockpit airplane rides or wrap, unwrapping the motorcycle, though, for uh, sorry a to day hear. or two. Sorry yeah. to hear. Oh, bummer. Oh, well. 
And that other voice is uh, Jeb Burnside, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How are you doing, Jeb? I'm doing all right. Uh, kind of tired today, working hard this week. You were torturing us this afternoon by sending us the weather uh, observations from Florida. Yeah, sorry about that. You, you, you. <laughs> well, it didn't um, bother me. 90 yeah. degree plus, right? 90 degree plus. Um, no it's rain for after a while. Yeah, yes, right. it does. It hate does. it when that happens. Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> then I go north for like, you know, an hour. <laughs> get, get, yeah. Get, um, yeah. Get rid of that problem. What's so. going down on going on down your neck of the world these days? Uh, uh, just working and trying to keep the head above water. Um, looking forward to. We finally had some some decent weather breakout down here, and uh, kind of looking forward to um, fall in Florida. Okay, I, I guess. Is, which as is opposed like, to summer in Florida, as which is kind of like sp- spring anywhere else. Yeah. yeah okay. So this story here, this is a story uh, on... Uh, and who are you again? Oh, no, I introduced myself. I, no, you didn't. Did, did he? No, I'm pretty no. sure I did. No. I do it at the beginning now. So I, I, I used to do it at the end. I cockpit. I used to do it at the end, and I was always forgetting. That's why you guys want to remind me. But now I do it at the beginning. I'm Jack. I Welcome saw this back, story man. on AvWeb, and no joke, I had to look at the date to make sure it wasn't an April Fool's story. All right? This is the VTOL cargo design flies. You looking at the story here? Yeah. Um, this is I'm just, still not sure it's not an April Fool's joke. Uh, it's crazy. This is like <laughs> a, a, you know, kind of a, a box-shaped uh, cargo fuselage with a uh, uh, with sort of a, a empennage, kind of a horizontal, you know, biggish horizontal stabilizer tail kind of thing, and a canard kind of front wing, also kind of big, you know, wide. And well, then, it's, a two, it's a two-wing airplane, one in the nose and one in the right. tail. But and then it happens to be a sixteen-engine airplane. All right, if, if I'm counting these correctly, each side has two banks of four, what appear to be fan jets of some sort, and. It's like uh, headline VTOL cargo. <laughs> we're, we're going around. Everybody, grab a throttle. <laughs> uh, VTOL aircraft designed to pick up and carry standard twenty-foot cargo containers, like the ones carried by trucks and ships, is in the works at a startup company in the United Kingdom. Thorsten Reinhardt, founder and managing director of Four by Four Aviation, based at London's Ashford Airport flew a small-scale model of his design briefly last week and said a full-size prototype with the 50-foot wingspan could be completed in the next few years. This guy's got big, you know, God bless him. He's got a lot of ambition here. Uh, he thinks he can produce 30 of these a month in the, in three or five years from now. Or Probably so. could if he had enough money. Yeah. He says they're going to sell them for $600,000 a piece. And... Uh, and he's trying to raise money is to actually... That, is there that much of a market to carry a standard 20-foot 20, 20 as opposed to 40-foot you know? cargo container by air? Is yeah. there that much of a demand? I don't know. That's a good question, and, and you know, time will tell. Well, but and The other thing I'm, I'm thinking about is if, if this is the artist's concept of the real thing, yeah. they, they, they're not going to survive... The engineering changes that are going to have to happen for those 16 engines to be able to pick up one of those cargo containers loaded at its gross and go anywhere without the engines just ripping themselves off that fuselage. You'd think that, yeah, that whatever there, that whatever passes for a spar between those, uh, yeah, uh, those banks uh, of engines and the fuselage must be 
because I didn't. I don't even see any kind of spar like attachment. Going to need to going to need to kind of stagger the way the engines are arranged too, because the way it looks right now, the inlets for the aft engine banks are directly in the exhaust line. Yeah, I know. Of the ones in front. It is going to be a little bit of a problem when he's going, going it's, forward. It's, yeah. it, it's going to be a cooling problem just sitting on the ground. Yeah. So anyways, I have to say, and, and you guys know this, but when I saw this, I immediately thought, this is one of those uh, uh, aircraft from the Thunderbirds TV show from when I was a kid, the uh, the marionette puppet <laughs> uh, uh, adventure series where they had all sorts of different bizarre aircraft. And this looks just like, I swear, this could have been one of the one of the aircraft. It may well be inspired by the Thunderbirds for all we know. But uh, anyway. Well, I, I could see the concept where you need to move a lot of containers to a remote area in a big hurry. That is, the containers show up on a ship and the dock is not where you want them. You want them 50 miles away where there's no road. Or, you know, a C-17 delivers a, a, a three or four of them, and you need to get them out into some mountains where there's no roads. I can see yeah, that. There, I don't see this, 30 a month in, in anybody's lifetime. Yeah, there's this new invention to carry these. It's called um, oh, a helicopter. Helicopter. Well, I don't know. Can a helicopter? Some of these things are heavy, but... Uh, Helicopters yeah. already lift these. Don't things. don't load them that heavily. Yeah, right. Well, I think use use two. Make as two David trips. alludes, you might have to not load them very heavily for this gadget too. So, anyways, good well, luck to uh, this. Apparently, I'm looking at the website. This apparently runs on a single um, uh, internal combustion engine, which in turn operates oh. a generator alternator, and then. That electricity is routed to each of these fan motors. You know, I wish the guy the best, but I'm not buying it. Okay. I don't know if that's going to work. I don't know. Well, uh, there's some efficiencies in using electricity to generate thrust. Uh, yeah, when one thing you don't have, you don't have all this heat loss like you do with combustion engines. Yeah, but I would imagine that when when weight's not an issue, like on a submarine, it's fine. All right, but you know, or or a, or a train or something like that. But uh, I don't know. Anyways, well, we wish I, I, the best to yeah, Thorsten Reinhardt here. Yes, Go for it, man, and yes. uh, we'll see. But uh, you know, if nothing else, this can be the star of the uh, modern day version of the Thunderbirds, and that would be cool. Well, it, you know, if it, if if those are electric drive motors, and all the stuff that I said about the exhaust and the inlets lining up. Right, uh, that's not a big it, deal. That's pretty much a moot question. Uh, I stand behind the, I think you're going to need better structural support for the engines. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can't tell when this art is not, and there's no better art on the website. I can't tell. There's a, a white structure, at least underneath the front wing. I, I don't know if that's a canard or a... Or a a four-mounted wing, and it looks like, I don't know, pipe or something like that, and then it's got a right angle, and it, it, it turns Yeah, I see what you're and, talking about. And, and mounts and, and, and starts to, to get into the framework of, of the, the four-engine mount. If that's all that's holding those engines on, you are absolutely right. Um, um, you're going to leave that thing behind. So, anyways, we'll see. We'll see. But it'll be interesting to see how far the engines go by themselves. 
it will, it will be. Will be. Yeah. Whether, whether, you know, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll run bets and we'll tell you. Now, is there, is there, is a cluster going to survive and stay together or will they all just come apart and go yeah, off we, in their own direction? Which it, one it, will make it, it could, the furthest and what will that distance be? It could be, you know, a Merv type of concept. <laughs> How long will it take for the smoke to clear? <laughs> I, back in my, uh, back in my younger days, I, when, when, we we were all you know when I think it's true for all of us that when that we were kids we were in our yeah. early twenties we were all driving really cheap cars okay the the minimal car that you could get away with and drive and so I was driving one of these and I won't go into all the details here but basically one of the one of the wheels came off my car while I was driving down the road and the interesting part so and it was that the the wheel had so much I don't know what you know momentum and whatever that when it popped off the wheel all right it kind of just kept going, and I saw what I when I realized this was happening, I saw the wheel shoot out ahead of me, and I'm going, "Oh, that's not good." <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a song about that. And the interesting part was that the car did not inst- immediately fall down on you know on the missing wheel. It kind of sort of stayed upright for a did while. You, did you know which one it was immediately? I, I, I knew which one was a problem child. Could, and you, so, could you could you like lean in the opposite direction? Yeah, or something? right. That's so. I just kind of gently pulled over to the side of the road, and the car kind of slowly came to a halt and just as okay, it stopped there, moving there, it tipped over onto the bad you know the missing there, there's wheel. your episode title you've picked a fine time to leave me loose wheel <laughs> yeah right okay hey i was looking at a recent issue of wired magazine there was a little uh, kind of sidebar item in there about a uh, a, a new aerostat uh, uh, radar surveillance aerostat blimp kind of thing that's being deployed in the maryland area um near the dc area and and i guess its intention is to uh, be part of the surveillance for security in the dc area and whatnot and uh, oh joy it just got me to thinking because i got to thinking you know oh man here we go another hazard to, to navigation you know and and so i did a little research and i'm coming to the conclusion that there's a lot more of these these tethered aerostats than maybe i realized I'm always been aware of the one that's down in the Florida Keys, and I guess maybe I sort of thought that that oh, was the exception that there aren't very many of these. No, there's there's one that I know of along the southwest border with Mexico. Yeah, apparently there's at least one. At along, least right. at least one. Yeah, for that, and uh, and so there's I, another one. There's another one that kind of uh, I believe that there's another one that kind of is. Uh, uh, outside the Houston area, mm-hmm. it covers the Middle Gulf. Uh, there's one uh, not too far from Cedar Key in Florida. Right, uh, that may be the one the that I'm handle. Right. Oh yeah, and then, you know we've we've been at the same altitude with that puppy on a number of occasions on our way to usually Sun and Fun or Orlando for something. The there one, was one. Yeah, go ahead. The one down. Well, the, it can look like a bloody seven forty-seven if it's moving around in the wind. It's really hard to peg what the hell it's doing. Yeah. Well, and it's not the aerostat that concerns me because I figure that's got to be you know no more or less visible than you know one seventy-two. My it's concern is always it, it's the tether. It's the line yeah. that concerns me. Um, you know that you could be flying along, and if you didn't, you know, do your due diligence, and you don't see it up above you, and you could fly right through that line. Um, and so, and then you a, become a story topic for me in Jeb's magazine it's, it's about okay, people you're, don't do their due diligence. Yeah, yeah Jeb. It's a, 
It's okay because you're only going to do that once. Only going to do that once. Um, I was curious to see whether or not this this particular one in Maryland was charted, because the one down in the Keys that I'm so familiar with is really dramatically charted. Um, there's a there's a distinctive well, circle there on the on there, the Keys. There, there, there was a big fight over that, yeah. uh, my friend, many years ago, uh, and it got repeated in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks back in 2001. And that was suddenly the security apparatus of this country wanted to make information like that off limits from the charts mm-hmm. while at the same time barring us from flying near or over things. Yeah, right. like so We're not going to tell you where, power, but don't yes. fly there. Right, yeah. Right. exactly. We'll throw your ass in jail. Well, it turns out that this Maryland one um, that is on the grounds of the Aberdeen Proving Grounds um, is charted. Um, and in, in fact, it's charted no more or less than the one down in the Florida Keys. I was surprised by this. Um, is there, they all uh, have to be now. It's it's not charted distinctively as a spot, as, as a point, um, it, but it's it's within what happens in the in the Maryland example of being uh, part of uh, restricted area four zero zero one Alpha and Charlie, and um, there's a little sidebar box pointing into this restricted area that's just labeled caution unmarked balloon on cable to ten thousand feet MSL, and. The reality is that's all the charting there is. If you go look at the one in Florida, down in the Keys, all right, it's charted just exactly the same way. The the only thing that makes that one more distinct is that there's less other stuff in that area, and the restricted area down in the on the Keys is a very distinctive circular. It looks like this really obvious thing, all right. Well, that's because it's not inside of the special use airspace. Exactly, exactly. But but so, the thing to remember here, uh, real quick and dirty. Is that up to ten thousand MSL is on a dead calm day? Yeah, right. Because on a windy day, it's a going to be lower by some degree, because b the wind is going to blow it off at an angle, and it could be a half a mile, three quarters of a mile, mm. near a mile away from where being over where it's tethered. Yeah. Quick, quick quiz: Which direction is it going to blow? Downwind. Thank you. Why is that a trick question? It's not a trick question. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's going to blow down wind. It's, um, uh, what makes the one in, by the way, the one in Maryland, the one in Aberdeen Proving Grounds, particularly notable is that although it's not clear exactly where this is located in this restricted area, part of this restricted area is, uh, is in underneath the uh, Class Bravo, the uh, Baltimore it, Class Bravo. Part of that restricted area has an altitude cap predicated on how high... The ordinance goes when they're doing tests there. Yeah, I know, I know. So, yeah. you know, there, there was a restricted area south of Manassas, still is, I'm sure, south and southwest of Manassas, maybe ten or twelve miles, and it was a problem sometimes coming in, coming out because uh, it was up to like thirty five hundred or something like that, and it was or maybe even higher, and it was awkward to try to get direct over it or around it or through it or anything like that. But I, you know, for years I was flying out of Manassas like, stupid government, you know, got all these airspace restrictions, and I just want to go direct. And yada, yada. And I was out of Manassas one night, and I guess I was leaving after doing some flying, and I happened to look off in that direction, and you could see these projectiles. Yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were making these huge arcs and, and whatnot in the night. And I said, 
you know, I think I might change my opinion yeah, exactly. on, on this topic. Yeah. And, uh, that was yeah. the last time I gave it much thought. So, anyways. Well, where, near where I grew up was uh, Jefferson Proving Ground. Uh, the Navy used it to test uh, big guns. Okay. Big guns. Yeah. And I didn't realize it when I was a kid because when the wind was right, we could hear it in my hometown, like 60 miles away. Uh, we're talking, you know, 15, 16-inch stuff that they're firing off there. Uh, when I started flying in and out of the area, I became familiar with some of the cautions about flying in the vicinity of Jefferson Proving Ground because I never thought of it as a kid. Just how high some of these artillery shells can go mm-hmm. en route to a target in eight, 16, 17-mile distant right. from where, it's, where, where it leaves the muzzle. Well, you, you, and you kind of yeah. go, holy crap. Yeah. You figure, what's the, what's the initial angle on this thing? 45 degrees? Wouldn't that be something like close to max range? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know let's see, 45 degrees. Ooh. I had a similar experience um, flying uh, one night south of Fort Knox. Uh, Kentucky, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, restricted area, prohibited area, whatever it was there, and seeing, I think, I think it was tanks uh, or a tank gun being shot in the night, and seeing this, you know, this shell going arcing through the night, and it's like, and, it's like, and there you go, there goes another one, and like, <laughs> yeah, dang, <laughs> yeah, I never saw it, but there was a similar kind of thing back in California, where south of south of the San Francisco area. And we'd, when we were flying VFR, which is, of course, what I always did, if we were head south, one of the routes we'd like to follow along was along um, New Hampshire Route 101, which was sort of one of the great major north-south roads. And it would stay between the hills, and it was just a convenient landmark to follow. In a particular place, uh, 101 passed through, uh, I don't know it was through or between two restricted areas, and maybe they were MOAs, I'm not sure. All I know is that uh, I heard at one point that the, what they did when these MOAs were hot was fire tank projectiles. They were, tanks would shoot from one pot to another. And sometimes they, someone told me, I don't know if it was true or not, someone said that they were actually firing over the highway. Like, oh, I believe that. From one spot to another across the highway. Yeah. And, and someone said something along the lines of, you know, it's like, you know, the MOA is hot, but that doesn't, obviously, you don't necessarily need to, you know, you can fly through there anyways. And I'm going, wait a minute, they're, they're shooting across the highway and I'm following the highway? It, would, no. it wouldn't be a MOA. It, it, the, the rules for airspace designation, a MOA, you're going to have, <clears throat> you know, um, military aircraft performing high-performance stuff, uh, performing high-performance maneuvers, but you're not going to have live fire in a MOA. You're going to have live fire in a restricted or prohibited oh, area. Oh, okay. Well, that's what it was then. It was a restricted area. So, yeah. anyways... All right then. Well, um, so I don't know what the, the the lesson here is, but there's a lot more of these aerostats on on cables than we realized, or I realized. The lesson here is do your due diligence. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the read lesson. the charts carefully because they're not well charted. They're they're there, but they're not dramatic. Sometimes. The lesson too is you know any kind of high risk vocation or, or avocation, um, especially flying airplanes or other vehicles within a couple of hundred feet of the ground is risky. Yes. That too. And, and you need to, to consider that. Yeah. Hey, we're going to take a quick little break. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. In my opinion, flying breaks all the laws of physics. 
The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. I'm Stephen Hawking, but you knew that. The sum of the squares of the legs of a right triangle is equal to the square of the hypotenuse. The sum of the squares of the legs of the sum of the squares of the sum of the squares of the sum of the squares of the sum of the squares. Hi, this is Jack. We've said it before, and it bears repeating, that maybe the most pleasant surprise of doing this podcast all these years has been meeting our listeners at fly-ins and just wandering around at airports. You talking with us and sharing your aviation experiences has helped us broaden our knowledge and enjoyment of flying. Thank you. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that we also appreciate the financial support we get from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. So thanks for listening, and please make sure you track us down and say hi at the next fly-in. Uh, the big... <laughs> there you go. I don't know. Can I leave that in the podcast? I, if you want to. Okay. Uh, we're back. Uh... <laughs> I haven't decided yet whether I left that in or not. Time will I, tell. I understand. Time will It'll tell. come to you when you're doing the do, editing. Do you have any Marines that are cl- close friends of yours? <laughs> but not much longer? <laughs> uh, uh, I think I think the people Yeah, I actually, know, I think he does. But The people I know who are Marines, um, if, A, have heard that joke before. B, are are sufficiently um, self-confident that they don't yeah. need to beat the snot out of yeah, me or something like that. They're not worried about what we think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So um, I'm not a big fan of Airbus aircraft. Um, I, I don't know whether that's apparent from the podcast, but it's true. Um, I'm, I'm not wild about Airbus, but uh, but this is a cool video. Have you guys seen this video? This has been another edition of True Confession. Yeah, right. Um, this is a cool video. Um, so it's apparently in the celebration of something. What the some anniversary of of uh, of Airbus uh, what is it I got to find the thing here the A350 I, I think, think the 30th yeah of the single aisles so they took five um A350s and uh flew them in formation and it it's kind of cool i mean it's not like you know the it's not like the aeroshell team you know but uh but it's not that far so i was watching this video and it's very scenic you know these airplanes flying in formation and sort of a diamond loose diamond formation and and whatnot and i was that, in my that, mind that's i was very I was, trick man that's very trick i was in my mind i was i was preparing to have this conversation and i was going to make a joke about them you know well, well i really want to see them do the uh you know the uh what, what do they call it the bomber right that the the blue starburst. angels and the thunderbirds do all right starburst. and as i'm yeah the starburst right and as i'm watching it suddenly they actually do sort of a modified slight version of the starburst it's like not not pulled to the vertical all right but uh flying horizontally they had the uh, you know they had the, the two outside aircraft peeled off to left and right and the one in the center kind of kind of climbed out and they they sort of did this little horizontal starburst and uh, it's, it's just a cool video it's just very scenic and very pretty and uh um, you know. Okay, here's my question. Yeah. Okay. What airplane did they use for the camera ship? Yeah, that that would be an interesting question. Do you know the answer? Yeah. I have no. I have no idea what the answer is. Yeah. I know. I know where the best equipped setup in the 
in the world operates from, but I don't get a hint looking right. at this to where they flew that. From Van Nuys, right, David? Yeah, Van Nuys. Yeah. It's Clay Lacy. It could have been Clay Lacy. Um, mm-hmm. It's that kind of a, of a you know, quality shots. But uh, well, well, he's got a – he invented a, a camera mount in a Learjet that will take everything from a 35-millimeter film camera to 70-millimeter and uh, what do you call it? IMAX motion picture cameras. And it pans and it tilts and it's stabilized and – You've seen tons of its work. Every time you watch Top Gun, you see some of its yeah, work. Yeah, That's right. yeah. So yeah. that quality of, of aerial photography happens in this in this Airbus video. So take a look at it. It's kind of cool. We'll put and the, that's that stuff's hard work, man. Yeah, I bet. Oh, I mean, yeah. that, that that's oh, yeah. really hard work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So nice video, nice video. All right, here's where I don't know. I'm going to eat some crow. Um, and Jeb, it's mostly <laughs> Jeb in my mind who's going to be giving me a hard time about this. All right. But uh, so I was a oh. proponent of letting us turn on our Wi-Fi devices, our electronic devices in the cabin of an airliner. I said, listen, these things are hardened. It's not a problem. And no sooner did we, you know, within months of us getting permission to have our gadgets turned on in the, in the, in the cabin, um, we have the FAA issuing a, an airworthiness directive. Um, this is from a story, uh, Avweb. Uh, avionics AD affects 1,300 Boeing aircraft. The FAA issued an airworth- airworthiness directive on Wednesday that requires the operators of 1,300 Boeing 37 and, and 777 jets to replace certain Honeywell avionics display units. Uh, and uh, jumping ahead here, uh, the units are susceptible to interference from some Wi-Fi devices, the FAA said. So, oops. It's like, oh, well, maybe, maybe they're not as hardened as we thought. Jeb, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it's tough being right all the time, but you know, it's it's a burden, but uh, it's one that I'm equipped to bear. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I just, you know, I'm just glad that finally uh, uh, you come around to this this the, the way that, that things should be. And I'm I'm just shanking chains here. Um, this <laughs> this I don't know. This kind of sounds like a little bit like a nothing burger on one level. Ryanair and Honeywell said it would be simpler to restrict the use of Wi-Fi devices in the cockpit. Well, duh. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, that would certainly be to seem to be, be easier to just add a limitation to the to the flight manual about uh, um, not using Wi-Fi devices in the cockpit. The problem with that, of course, is enforcing it. Uh, not so much from, from a... Uh, an enforcement standpoint, but right. from the standpoint of making sure phones and tablets and stuff are, in, are either off or in airplane mode or whatever, um, there's always going to be some nummy who who misses the uh, who misses the briefing. Um, but I'll but, tell you, even before they t- let us leave these things on during takeoff and landing, um, the you know the 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 occurrence of Wi-Fi in flight in the cabin is just becoming near universal. It's, it is. It um, is. And so I don't see how you're going to, you know, maybe you could have them turned off during, you know, the crucial parts of flight. But uh, um, this is well, a, there's, there's, a done deal. I don't know. You know, to me, there's – it's worth differentiating a little bit between connecting with an installed, tested, and tso onboard Wi-Fi system between your device and and that. And what goes up? What goes on up on the flight deck? 
where that's that's very often where the, uh, the the systems can be most susceptible to interference is when you get closest to the devices themselves, uh, as opposed to wherever the antenna is for the onboard Wi-Fi system somewhere in the back cabin. Uh, but Jeb's right, man. I mean, without this stuff being tested, and if you look at the number of permutations possible that might require testing, it gets to be a, a little bit ridiculous. And then we come back to what's the simplest way to fix this? Yeah. Keep them turned off. Yeah. If it hurts when you do that, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's the Lisa Simpson solution. Stop um, picking at the scab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know anything Thank about you, David, this. For that image, I appreciate. That. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything about this equipment. I don't know anything about this episode. Um, all I do know is, and we've discussed this in past episodes, that <clears throat> even on on simple airplanes like mine, uh, I have from time to time seen uh, portable devices generate interference. Um, generally, in the intercom or the communications uh, system. Um, not really, you know, noticed it in navigation systems or anything else, but it, it certainly the potential exists. And yeah. in, in if you know, if it can happen in, in something as simple and uh, basic as my airplane, uh, God only knows what can happen aboard some of these more sophisticated aircraft. Uh, these these you know modern modern jet transports with in-flight entertainment and Wi-Fi and and uh, you know, all kinds of wiring things going on. You know, we saw with Swiss Air, I forget, Swiss Air 222 or whatever it was, um, where the, the uh, in-flight entertainment system took down the airplane. That was a fire. It was not an, an electrical, I mean, electronic gremlin, I should say. Um, but stuff happens. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I, again, I don't know anything about the hardware or the uh, episode involved here, but I wouldn't be the least bit surprised to see this happen again with other hardware and other air- airframes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. Okay. And it, 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 it's it's going to be tough to enforce any kind of rules because in the last decade or so, a significant element of our society have adopted this crazy idea that. Uh, not being able to focus on electronic messages at any given second is a threat to their life and their very freedom. Yeah. So your point you is, know, yeah, okay, yeah, all right. It's like I'm sorry, but living it, that if 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 you're a threat to my living, that takes priority. Okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> but I, I'm going to die if I don't get this text from, know. This, from this woman. I, that's right. It's, it's the end of the world, man. Yeah, well, Dave, Jeb, you get so few texts from women that I understand. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah, okay. No. Um, so it's this week in, uh, in uh, Fed, Fed, you know, FAA Follies thing. I don't know. It's, uh, we got a couple of things here. I actually want to jump to the third of these sub points first. Um, so I came across today a story um, – and I pointed you to an. I don't know if this is the only one or but where I came across it, but it's airtrafficmanagement.net. Um, has a story that's datelined yesterday. Uh, next gen priorities secure stakeholder buy-in. Now, if I'm reading this story right, what they're saying is that the FAA feels like they have gotten 
um, sort of a, of an agreement from uh, a number of the players here, uh, 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 something called the Next Gen Advisory Committee, an organization composed of airlines, manufacturers, and unions, and represents, quote, the culmination of several months of intensive and unprecedented collaboration. All right. Um, and they've gotten, they claim that they've gotten buy-in from these, these groups that they will in fact, uh, you know, meet the, uh, next gen, the, the ADSB or whatever our requirements. I, my first question is, well, are you guys at all familiar with this story? Is, is this the, the ADSB or the next gen summit that we were hearing about no. a, a couple weeks yeah. ago? No, I believe it's so. It's not. The, no. the, ne the next gen summit we were hearing about a couple of weeks ago is set for the 28th. I oh, okay. Oh, that's right. Summit. That's right. All right. Um, and um, this is something, I don't know how different, but it's something different. Uh, it's not that same event. Hmm. But this is primarily a commercial operations focused. Right. Because that's what caught uh, my attention is where's, where's general aviation in this list? And uh, Well, there, there, there's a whole other thing going on between... AOPA, NBAA, EAA, and the FAA, where NextGen and ADSB is concerned, and, okay. and the benefits and the rollout. But this is really specific to some of the ways that the technology can support procedural changes <clears throat> that will oh, okay. actually yeah. deliver mm -hmm. measurable capacity benefits. Did I say that well enough? Yeah, you did. And you know, basically, the, your clues here are um, airlines, manufacturers, and unions, and, and those three or types of organizations together means basically um, air traffic control and, and uh, ground support personnel. Um, plus, you've got FAA management involved. Basically, you know, there's a... And there was an IG report last month. DOT uh, Inspector General uh, put a report out. Um, the basic thrust of the report, oh, I can pull it right back up. Um, the title of the report, ADSB benefits are limited due to a lack of advanced capabilities and delays in use, user equipage. Ding. Um, yeah, ding, ding, ding. Um, there's two things going on in that headline or in that title. The one thing I want to talk about is the ad advanced capabilities. Um, there, there's, I don't know, two basic, and Dave, jump in here anytime. But one of the ways that ADSB was sold to the carriers was to allow them to fly more efficient routings. Um, top of climb, they pull the throttles to idle and don't touch them until they're on the runway. Uh, things like that. One of the keys to doing all of that, there's several keys. One of them is, is developing the procedures, um, doing the training, and uh, making sure that everyone's on the same page of the hymnal. Um, this strikes me as one of those efforts to, to move along, if you will, these, these capabilities that, <clears throat> that next gen and by extension ADSB have been promised for the airlines mm -hmm. okay and and perhaps for for uh, certain private operators with the performance capabilities you're looking at decreased separation especially you know like at Louisville or at Memphis or something like that when you know for 3 or 4 hours um, every night 
everything Louisville, is, Louisville and Memphis being the hubs for UPS and FedEx, right? Right, right. As, as examples, and you know, for 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 a couple three hours each evening and a couple three hours early each morning, um, boom, boom, boom. They're shooting them in and they're shooting them out. And um, if everybody's equipped the same and everybody's trained the same, and everybody is using the same. Uh, procedures, then they can move aircraft a lot more efficiently than, say, Atlanta on a Friday afternoon. Um, that's the kind of thing that I think this is talking about. It is. Cheb's right. And that thing about pulling the throttles on a descent and, and not having to touch anything all the way to the runway threshold. That's a big, that's a big deal. That's a big deal that, that uh, I'm sorry, scratch that, UPS, David, UPS has been using in Louisville for several years now, primarily because they were the beta test of having all this ADSB out and in equipment and in special software that communicated guidance to the cockpit of individual aircraft so that Jeb's pilot in command of Airplane B, RA, Jackson B, I'm in C, we're all on approach to Louisville International. We pull the throttle somewhere back up around Indianapolis for the northerly arrival. And we don't touch anything again until we need to deploy flaps and gear. In the meantime, between our three cockpits, we're getting messages about changing trim just enough to increase speed three or four knots or decrease speed three or four knots. And the arrivals are happening at the runway at about half the normal separation rate, which doubles the runway acceptance rate at that airport when you can do that. Well, this stuff only works if everybody plays. Right. Now, you get a Memphis with... FedEx, you get a Louisville with UPS, you get an Indianapolis with the parcel service or the post office uh, operations uh, where all the carriers' airplanes are owned and operated by the same people. They all operate with the same basic equipment, equip them the same way, train the pilots the same way. You can make that work. You get into a mixed environment like a Hartsfield or a Charlotte or Cincinnati with all these passenger-carrying airplanes. Not until they all equip the same way and train the same way can they make mm-hmm. this work. Sure. So my cynicism here was unfounded. This, uh, this, this is uh, a step along a road, and it's still a long road. Right. Because right now they're talking about adding performance-based na- navigation, which is the, the basic key to that kind of arrival that Jeb's talking about. They're going to add it to key metro areas in Northern California. Atlanta and Charlotte. The performance-based navigation is going to let them tighten up airport arrival rates, tighten up things on the arrivals themselves, give them more variety in the uh, routes that they funnel airplanes to the runways at the airports. Uh, But it's going to mean that all those airplanes have to be crewed by pilots trained to those procedures. They have to be equipped to use those procedures, and the airplanes have to be certified as having the right equipment. So that's why they pushed this all out to 2020. Getting user buy-in to, yes, we will equip for that if we see progress on the procedures that to me is a huge step. It is a, it is a big step. And Jack, you're you're 
kind of saying, well, I didn't know if I didn't know if I should be cynical about this or not. Well, I subscribe to Lily Tomlin on that, which is no matter how cynical you become, it's never enough to keep up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, right. all right then. So, so the next part of my cynicism is this: um, the other next federal story we've got here um, is a uh, AIN online story um, the, uh, from a couple of days ago. It says FAA faces $5 billion deficit in the next decade, officials warn. And I, know this, I think this is just link bait, and they're just kind of like trying to get a lot of clicks here. But it did make me wonder, and we can talk about $5 billion deficits and what that really means. But here's my real question, just so that I have some context here. What is the annual budget, which is to say expenditures, of the FAA? How much does it cost to run well, the FAA? There's, there's this new thing. It's called a federal budget. Yeah, it's about and fifteen billion a year right now. I think, I think even according to this article, it's, it's fifteen billion. Um, now that includes um, things like spending on airport improvement programs, buying uh, next-gen hardware and, and, and software. Uh, yeah, there uh, it is. Paying uh, employees, um, things like that. They're right. they're they're total nut. Um, just saying this, fifteen point four billion yeah. for twenty fifteen. That's the budget request, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, one of the things that set off warning, you know, bells in my head when I was reading the story. The lead paragraph says the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has no choice but to cut the services it provides or raise more money over the next decade. Well, well there's that's, something that's, happening. That's it's, some blowing snow. Yeah, right. I mean, it's like setting the, it's laying the groundwork for the yeah, fact, the, the, the idea the, that the, the Fed needs to, the, the FAA needs to have an income. Well, that's, that's, that's certainly one of the things it's doing. It's, it's a false premise, though. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, geez. I don't know even where to start. Um, nominally, the Airport and Airways Trust Fund was created back in the 80s. Uh, it was a, it was revamped from a mechanism from the seventies um, to as a repository for airline ticket taxes, uh, air, air aviation fuel taxes, <clears throat> a variety of other um, excise taxes, and the proceeds go into the trust fund. It's spent uh, nominally each year on airport improvement, on buying new VORs, on you know whatever. Um, Back in, I guess, the 80s or 90s, um, the FAA started being able to tap into the trust fund for its operations expenses. There there used to be there were like four big account subcategories within the FAA's budget, operations, facilities and equipment, airport improvement program, and research and development. And research development, airport improvement, and facilities equipment were all funded by the trust fund. And then the nose, the camel's nose got in the tent, and more and more of the FAA's operating um, budget, operating account, began to be funded by user fees. Not so much user fees, but excise taxes in, from, coming from the trust fund. I don't know what the proportion is anymore. Um, <clears throat> If Congress, in its infinite wisdom, thinks that um, the FAA should be doing more, then Congress, in its infinite wisdom, should be appropriating more funds from general revenue. As David likes to say, ding, ding, ding. To, yeah. to, to pay for these things and to ensure this nation has a safe and efficient uh, uh, national aviation system. Yeah. And, and, well, and, and it, you look at 
what's happened to trust fund revenues. Well, which is a last, whole other topic. Whole another the topic. La- well, the, it, but they're related in, in, in this way. In the last decade or so, average airfares have not increased by as much as the cost of running the FAA has increased. And at the same time, airlines have avoided charging for tickets at the level that they would have had to if they hadn't started charging for other things like checked bags. Ding, ding, ding. Special seats that are not subject to the excise tax, the airline ticket tax. Which I think is a scandal, and I don't understand why. I I agree it's a scandal. Why why the the Congress isn't isn't jumping all over this. So you've got these cost pressures on the FAA uh, to modernize the system and the performance pressures of Congress to do it without having more money. And at the same time, you have a source of money that's not keeping up with what it costs you to do what you do. Uh, at some point here, that that forecast becomes easy. You're going to run a budget deficit without money from the general funds. That's the caveat. That's what's not said here. Is that Congress can always say, okay, the public benefit of aviation is so monumental that – we need to be kicking in more from the general fund because of the general benefit to the general public. There's a hell of a lot of opposition to even recognizing that public benefit idea. Yeah. Yet the Defense Department and law enforcement and environmental protection and all these things that don't pay taxes into the system use it. And people's daily lives who aren't in the aviation industry benefit from the existence of the system. Yeah. So, anyway, so, we, we should move on here. Everyone should just drop a little note to their Congress people and just say, "Come on, let's do this right." Let's be well, right. Part, I, the other thing going on here is is uh, uh, the FAA and industry are gearing up, as we've talked, uh, for another reauthorization bill, the uh, uh, which starts in fifteen. Yeah. And. Uh, so it's going to be another, you know, um, another, another ten years, right? Another silly season. Let's yeah, put it right. That way. Well, just to, well, just today, Airlines for America—that's the old Air Transport Association. Don't you love the way they made up a patriot? Oh, yeah, the A four A, right? Yeah, the A four A, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, they they launched their lobbying comp- campaign for the 2015 FAA reauthorization. That says that a comprehensive overhaul of how the agency is funded and the money that it gets is needed because the airline industry is so overburdened with taxes that it's holding them back. But if you look at the uh, <laughs> financial <me>. numbers <laughs> of the last two or three years, they've been among the most consistently profitable and increasingly profitable that the airlines have enjoyed in decades. So tell me how that works out for you, A4A. You're under this terrible burden, but your members are making more money than ever. So how how do we shake that out? Oh, I know how we shake that out. We get those poor stepchildren that aren't paying their fair share to pony up so that we don't have to burden ourselves with the money that we don't pay anyway. By Anyways, me. that's enough for that's enough FAA follies for today. We'll, we'll <laughs> I think we'll probably talk more about the FAA in the future. Um, they might come up from time to time. Might come up from time to time. 
Uh, Jeb, so a, uh, an unmanned aircraft crashed uh, in near Dallas. Huh? I, I, I just like this is, you know, you, you so Jeb in in our in our list here, you headlined this, and so it begins. With all due respect, I don't think this is all that significant of of a matter, except that the media has been having fun with well, it. Well, that's that's part of the deal: is the media having fun with this, or, or not so much having fun with it? But I take some sort making of making it a big. This is a this is a um, '60s era technology um, balsa wood or styrofoam right, right. or seat airplane. That's all this is. What's the word? Schadenfreude. Uh, it's like taking yeah. some you know taking some some happiness from the from the trials of tra- you know troubles of others. I I I. I, I there's a little bit of satisfaction in seeing the UAV world being reported badly by the mainstream media. Um, and that's this story was just kind well, of weak. This is a very weak story. And this is not even a UAV in the conventional no, sense. It's a little, this is just an RC, RC model. This yeah. Somebody's RC model got out of control and crashed yeah. in, a, in, the, in the work lot of a business. Probably... Probably, you know, it was near. It was apparently near Dallas Love Field. It probably got interfered with by the Wi-Fi from a taxi <laughs> seven thirty-seven. And so it it came to the ground inside the fence of this uh, this thing. And 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 the story was. I think they described it as huge. All right. I mean, it, I mean, I guess it's a big RC, but it's really not all that big. It was like five feet wingspan. It's or something not even like that. that. It's like three and a half. Yeah. And uh, and you know and and it, it's just all right. Um, and hmm. And they made a huge deal out of it, except that at the very end of the story, and I didn't even see this necessarily in the text version of the story, but if you watch the actual news report, the video, um, they buried at the very end of the story the fact that the operators of this RC came forward. All right, yeah. they 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 arrived at the fence of the of the place trying to retrieve their airplane. By then, the police had come and gone and taken it away. And uh, and and the the uh, the person who was being interviewed by the TV people who worked in the in this yard this uh, this whatever it was a pallet company I guess um, he he said he said you know they had commented themselves they said oh man I guess I'm in trouble all right and and the the operators said they were headed to the police station to try and retrieve their their uh, their model aircraft. And that's where the story ended. And I don't know whether there's anything more to the story yet, but uh, it's uh, the other question I had is that the story said that the FAA would be investigating this. Was this just bad reporting, or would the FAA really be investigating this? Uh, this it's is a $700 toy. That it's caused, Texas, man. Who the hell knows? Yeah, that caused no property damage. All right, we, we had that story a couple of weeks ago about yeah. the ultralight that crashed. All right? right, and because it was an ultralight and, and cost a mere twenty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars. All right. Right? Um, that it was only a local police matter, or yet the seven hundred dollar model plane was going to be investigated by the FAA. I don't know. Well, it's a slow news day. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking but, of slow but, news you know, the days, the FAA has done everything it can yeah. to general aviation, and general aviation is, as we know, uh, um, on the shrink. Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah. So the FAA has to find some other segment of the industry over which it can exert authority and ruin. So it's looking at RCs and UAVs. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. So they, well, it, it, to me, it, it plays like the it, they ran this story through the buzzword checker and came up with drone, yeah. Ebola, yeah. illegal immigrant, uh, Mexico. And terrorism, and said, "Oh my God, it's a story," and that's how exactly how it came up on my radar. 
Yeah, right. Because <laughs> the guy, the guy who worked at this place, said, "You know, we didn't know what it was. It could have been terrorism. You know, it's... it could have been a vial of Ebola." Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. So, anyways, shout outs. What do we got here? I uh, one of one of you guys go first because I'm trying to prep something for my my um, shout out here. Oh, sure. Who's next? Who's who's first? Okay, Jeb's going ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead, Jeb. No, you go. No, you go. No, you go. All right, one of you go. Okay, so um, it's a dubious uh, distinction. It's a dubious uh, uh, memorial, um, but it is certainly a momentous one, and that is the fact that, at least according to Aerospace Smithsonian Magazine, um, the uh, age of air combat combat between two airborne aircraft was ushered in a hundred years ago this month mm. um, during World War one yeah um, the uh, um, apparently according, according to airspace is um, October of, of 1914 um, Germans versus the French mm-hmm. um, pilot was shot and killed by a bullet fired by the other airplane so that was the first known uh, uh, fatality yeah. uh, involving uh, um, air crew air shooting, air, each, right. yeah, shooting at each other. Yeah. And, of course, you know, we've come a long way since then. Um, never <laughs> never um, have we given up opportunities to try to figure out new and efficient ways to kill each other. That's yeah, true. I, uh, I, but yeah. It's always thing, struck well, me as... No, 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 here's the other point I want to make. Okay. This occurred... 11 years after the damn machines were invented. Yeah. Okay. So it only took 11 years from the from Kitty Hawk, actually less than 11 years, um, from Kitty Hawk to shooting at each other from these contraptions in the skies over Europe. That's that's some serious R&D there. Yeah, I mean we think we think technology is moving fast now, but it it was it's been moving fast for a while. And that's an example of it. Well, I think it's worth pointing out here that what they're talking about here is the first confirmed kill. Yeah. The first confirmed air-to-air shots fired in anger between occupants of two aircraft actually occurred during the Mexican Revolution uh, in two American pilots who were on Mm -hmm. the opposite side of the conflict in 1913, right down here – on the border with the United so States where the leave this first nice aero little, squadron was operating. You couldn't leave this a little nice little feel-good story. You had to, like, in, inject some controversy here, right, Dave? No, no controversy. The, the guys failed. They oh. were shooting at one another with revolvers. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. From yeah. Each yeah. Other's they, they, they missed each other. Oh, uh, okay. All right. Okay. Sounds good. All so, right. Well, 100 but, years. But 100 years since the first confirmed kill. And and like Jeb says, that's kind of a weird thing to celebrate. Yeah, but it is. Yeah. Believe me, we got much better at it by 1939. I, I, I still come back to, to the 11-year thing. That's just to me. Yeah. Um, I don't yeah. know. And, well, and that's, that's also not to say. Shooting at one another. Yeah, that's also not to say that um, aircraft... Uh, had not been used as, mach- as as machines of war prior to that. You know, hot air balloons as as observation platforms, um, dirigibles as as bombing platforms. Um, we're all um, you know in the mix here. 
uh, we're talking about heavier-than-air powered uh, uh, airplanes uh, invented less than 11 years earlier. Yep. Or I, I am, anyway. Yeah. So, anyways, that's good. My shout-out is that um, the story that maybe maybe I'm overdoing, but I just I continue to think this is an awesome story, and that's the EAA One Week Wonder story. And just a little tidbit here. Um, they posted in the last day or so um, the uh, time-lapse time lapse video. <laughs> it is. Of... Uh, Easy of, for you to say. Of the uh, no, it's not. I don't know what it is. Tonight. My lips are not working right. Uh, the time lapse video of the uh, of the seven day build, and it's a cool video. And my ego being what it is, all right, no, I had to not. go it into this. Be you. I went into this video, and and I was just curious whether Bych. Well, you got to understand now. I, I, for twenty five years, I've been attending um, Air Venture Oshkosh, and and each year I scrutinize pictures that I find of that year's Air Venture in the hopes that I will see myself in one of the pictures. And I've never, ever seen myself in some published picture. So I but had to do there that. he is. I had to do that again um, this time. And uh, it, it involved actually downloading. I had to download this video from YouTube and then go through it. I didn't go through the whole video frame by frame, but I knew approximately when I was there. And so I was flipping through the frames, and and I'm pretty sure that's me. I, I've, I've I first of all, right. forget yeah, I whether it's right. me or not. Congratulations, yeah. DAA. This is an awesome project, and the video is cool to see this thing kind of just blossom in on screen um, over the seven days. But uh, um, on day one, uh, the, you know, it's kind of easy to find because we're all wearing these uh, yellow uh, Air Venture Today uh, newspaper shirts. Um, although you're surprised how many yellow shirts appeared in this video throughout the week. Um, but there, there, I'm pretty sure that's me. That's, that's the, where everybody went. That's the table that I worked at. Um, and that's the part that I put my rivet into. And this is about the right time of day. And, uh, I'm pretty sure that's me. So they call me mellow yellow. Yeah. So, quite rightly. Now I went digging, um, later in the week, Jeb and I returned for Jeb to do his rivet. And then, and then Dave and uh, Jeb and I pulled a rivet, um, on behalf of Dave and Annie. And, um, I couldn't find that in the, in the video, unfortunately. Um, uh, that was, I was going to ask about that. I, I did look and, and I couldn't find what appeared to be that, that period. Um, so unfortunately we have connections. Chances are we could find the more complete version of this video, but, uh, I couldn't find that in this one. Um, interestingly, and I didn't post it on, on Twitter, but I did, if you guys refresh the list, um, you'll see I've added a link to another image. And Jeb, you may recognize this. Tell me when you have it on your screen. This is, yeah. This is yeah. later in the video. Um, yeah, I, uh, I see the, myself. There you go. And I see the two of us on the far side. Uh -huh. So this is later on a different angle. Um, oh, yeah. Outside. And this is just after they had taxied the aircraft out. They had to taxi it out on, outside the building because once the wings were on, they had to be working on it outside the building. Yeah, they didn't taxi it. They pulled it. They pulled it, right. Um, but they rolled it out. <laughs> and uh, Jeb and I were over there um, on, the, uh, on the east side of the building there. And I was shooting video and... and and I think, Jeb, you were taking pictures and just watching. And if you look closely, you'll see two yellow shirts over there. Um, the classic, the classic uh, air venture, mellow yellow, pale yellow. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, yeah. Over the years, there have been about four different uh, uh, shades of yellow shirts for air venture. Today, I was wearing my bright yellow one. Jeb was wearing more of the pale yellow one that day. Uh, and over the years, being worn yeah. once a year and washed until next year has yeah. an effect on them. So, too. anyways, that's uh, very cool. 
So there we go. And uh, we'll have to dig, we'll have to talk to our sources, David, and see if we can find the video of, uh, or the, the, the frames for when uh, Jeb and I were pulling those rivets for you guys. That would be cool. I, and uh, I'm pretty sure they're not in this time lapse. They, they obviously didn't show every frame. Um, and we were only there for a few minutes pulling that rivet. So anyways, uh, congratulations to EAA. Uh, continues to be an awesome project. And uh, uh, Jeff will, I'm sure, put links to the uh, to the time lapse as well as to these uh, two frames that I've pulled from the time lapse. Uh, that'll be in the show notes. What else? David, I got a you got quickie. One. Yeah, yep. what do you got, David? I want to shout out to an old Wichita friend who's uh, been out in Colorado since he retired uh, from the presidency of Cessna Aircraft. Uh, that's my old friend Charlie Johnson, who's now president and CEO of Aeroelectric Aircraft Corporation in Denver, uh, which is working with uh, a guy named George By to uh, develop electric power for aircraft. Well, Charlie was just recently inducted into the Colorado Aviation Hall of Fame in recognition of his uh, long-time uh, involvement in general aviation and contribution to aviation. Uh, he was at uh, Cessna. He joined up there in 79. He was manager of production flight test, uh, became uh, uh, head of uh, some of the production operations, eventually became president. Former military pilot, flew over a 1,000 hours of military flight time, uh, flew F-105s in Southeast Asia, uh, got about 14,000 hours of it. And the most recent stuff's in a two-seat prototype called the Sun Flyer that runs on electrons. So congratulations, Charlie. Uh, you've been at it a long time, and the fact that you're still carving away at it, uh, I think, is uh, worthy of the recognition <clears throat> Colorado gave you. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, very, very cool. Uh, anything else? I've got one here quickly before we finish up here, if I can just find it, because I've changed screens here. Let's see here. Where is it? Um, quick shout out to uh, uh, an aviation podcasting friend of ours, uh, Mike Daniels, uh, and his lovely wife, Elizabeth, um, who have been uh, into all kinds of adventures lately. Uh, the latest adventure is that they are trying to start up uh, an interesting aviation uh, business back in the uh, Las Vegas area, uh, something that they are calling Adventure Flight LSA. Um, it's kind of sort of a, it's it's still in its kind of, you know, getting started phases. So it's not clear whether it's a full-blown FBO or whether it's just a flying club. Um, but in any event, it's kind of cool. They're trying to raise money in order to purchase some LSA aircraft that they can uh, sell demo flights to and training on um, out of the, uh, in the Las Vegas area. It's not clear to me what airport, but I knowing them, it's probably North Las Vegas. That's where they were always based. And uh, if uh, you you do uh, Ad Adventure Flight LSA in Google, you'll probably find it. Um, specifically, their www.vegasadventureflights.com. Uh, no dots, no dashes, no spaces. Vegas Adventure Flights with an S on the end. dot com. And, uh, well, and if you want to sign up for his donate a hundred get an hour flight instruction. That's right. He's doing a, a crowdsource crowdsource uh, fundraising thing, um, and uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, That's a pretty good deal. An hour's worth of flight instruction. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the money he's yeah. looking, trying to raise is basically what it would cost you to get a uh, demo flight to begin with. So. Hey, when you consider that renting a new 172 with a G1000 panel that's there for God knows what reason costs you 140 150 bucks an hour, then you got to hire an instructor. $100 an hour for flight instruction wet with the with the CFI? Yeah. 
Hey, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we wish them the best of luck, um, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be tracking this to see how it goes. So Yeah, we want to follow up on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. Fork time. Ow. Jeb Burnside Ooh. is a uh, – Jeb, uh, good talking with you, a freelance aviation writer and editor serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. What have you been working on, Jeb? Anything fun? Aviation Safety Magazine. Hey, there you go. Huh? <laughs> yeah. How about that? What a coinkydink. Um, just put the, the major finishing touches uh, on the November issue uh, earlier today. Um, a couple of, a little bit more tinkering a little bit, a little bit over the weekend and um, get that one out the door. Um, working on some projects for the Aircraft Electronics Association. You can read them and or read about them uh, at some point on AEA.net. Um, check out AviationSafetyMagazine.com for that other stuff. Sometimes you might find me on the Twitter, and you're probably not going to find me on Facebook much. All right. like to hear that. That's good yeah. news. Yeah. And Dave Higdon is a aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for, I don't know what it's called these days. David, what's it called now? Avbuyer News? Avbuyer Magazine. Magazine. Uh, I got former, you. Should write, you should world write, aircraft sales. Write that down, maybe, and make it into I know. a script. That's what I just did. I just added to the script. Av, the U.S. editor for London's Avbuyer Magazine. Uh, David, what are you doing? What have you been working on? Well, uh, this month's, uh, the October issue of Avbuyer's got a couple of my pieces in it. Uh, I think one of the most GA uh, pilots might find. Most relevant is one on avoiding uh, mishaps during ground handling of the aircraft. Cool. And things we can do to keep uh, hangar rash uh, at bay. Mm -hmm. And where can people find you and all this stuff on the Internet? Well, uh, com will get you to the uh, magazine website. Uh, I also do a little work with that avionics publication Jeb was just talking about. So the same URL would apply there. And I got a little work in progress with uh, my friend at Aviation Safety Magazine, but that's going to have to wait before uh, we discuss that. So. Who, who, is, who is he? You don't know him. You don't know him. Okay. Uh, and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Um, I've been, uh, you know, I'm on this really weird stretch of not traveling for my, you know, day job, so to speak, uh, for a while here. But uh, so I've got all kinds of projects going on here. I've been doing a lot of work on my motorcycle. I've been having a lot of fun with that. And uh, um, I'm, I'm doing a lot of iPhone software development. Go figure. All right. I'm not sure where that's going to lead to, but uh, stay tuned. It could be some interesting uh, aviation related stuff. You're, so you're the guy behind iOS 8? Yeah, that's right. No. <laughs> hey, iOS 8, I definitely stumbled a bit, but iOS 8 is an awesome advance in the iOS de- uh, operating system. Uh, it's got some great stuff in it, and that's all I'm going to say. Hey, you can follow me at Twitter, uh, at uh, twitter.com slash jackhodgson, and learn more about me than you really wanted to know at jackhodgson.com and also aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for his help with the show notes and in the forums. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, Jim Golden, and, and the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. Um, also, don't forget to check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. You can also see who's doing what in the new ratings webpage of fame and much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, was there something you wanted to say? Live as long as you possibly can by flying as much as you possibly can because, you know, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. That's it. Show's over. Go home.
Hello. I'm still here. You there? Oh, He's okay. He's little hands on the five. The big hand is on the. Um, that's that's the old um, military training multi multi service um, control tower joke. What's okay. that? So the, the there's all these airplanes flying around and and um, the pilot and the student pilot or instructor pilot and one of them says, "Well, what time is it?" And tower says, "Well, who wants to know?" And the guy asking, "What time is it?" says, "Well." Does it matter? And the tower controller comes back and says, "Well, of course it matters." He says, "If it's if it's navy, it's six bells. If it's air force, it's five o'clock. If it's army, it's seventeen hundred. If it's Marine Corps, the little hand is on the five. <laughs> <at> the big." <laughs> There you go. I don't know. Can I leave that in the podcast? I, if you want to. Okay. Uh, we're back. Uh, <laughs> I haven't decided yet whether I left that in or not. Time will I, tell. I